When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. Another day is here, and you're ready for it. What to wear? Check. Breakfast, lunch, and dinner? Check. Planning for what's next and how to save for it? That's where Bank of America can help. For your financial to-dos, Bank of America has experts ready to help get you closer to your goals. Get started at one of our local financial centers or 24-7 in our mobile banking app. Find a location near you at bankofamerica.com slash talk to us. What would you like the power to do? Mobile banking requires downloading the app and is only available for select devices. Message and data rates may apply. Bank of America and a member FDSE. What kind of a show are you guys putting on here today? You're not interested in art? No. Now look, we're going to do this thing. We're going to have a conversation. From Chicago, this is Film Spotting. I'm Adam Kempinar. And I'm Josh Larson. Oh, greatest of kings. Indulge me in this friendly Christmas game. Let whichever of your knights is boldest of blood and wildest of hearts step forth. Take up arms and try with honor to land a blow against me. You want to go first, Sir Adam? Is it only at my house where Christmas games didn't involve beheadings? I mean, we've never done that. That clip from David Lowry's The Green Knight, the director's adaptation of the 14th century Arthurian legend, Sir Gawain and the Green Knight. This week on the show, we've got a review of Lowry's highly anticipated medieval tale, and we continue our Wong Kar Wai marathon with 1995's Fallen Angels. That and more ahead on Film Spotting. Discover why critics are calling Kingdom of the Planet of the Apes the best film of the franchise. What a wonderful day! It's a jaw-dropping spectacle that demands to be seen on the biggest screen possible. I need to go. Hang on. It is our time. Kingdom of the Planet of the Apes. Now playing only in theaters. Rated PG-13. Some material may be inappropriate for children under 13. Welcome to Film Spotting. Josh, last week we reacquainted ourselves with the movie that introduced many of us to Hong Kong auteur Wong Kar Wai, Chungking Express. That went pretty well, I'd say. Yeah, holds up from 1994. Still pretty good. Absolutely. This week, our world of Wong Kar Wai marathon continues with 1995's Fallen Angels, a Wong blind spot for both of us and a story Wong originally meant to include as part of Chungking Express instead. He decided to expand it into its own feature. We will discuss, perhaps, whether or not that was a good decision. That's later in the show. Plus, Josh has a The Suicide Squad review for us. You have to say it that way. You have to include the. Yeah, you got to distinguish it from the 2016 Abomination. Spoiler alert. You like this one. Well, hey, it has at least two manimals in it, Adam. So (laughs) it's kind of a foregone conclusion. You're such a sucker. But first, we both came away from 2019's The Personal History of David Copperfield thinking Dev Patel was way overdue to become a huge star. Will the Green Knight make that happen? Friends. Brothers and sisters. Who can 
regale me and my queen with some myth. Bonteo. Now, if I'm not mistaken, Josh, we were both English majors. This is true. It's a little known fact about me. <laughs> Educations that surely served us both well going into David Lowry's The Green Knight, since almost any conversation I've come across about the film mentions something about how its source material, the 14th century chivalric romance, is a monumental piece of literature, one most of our ilk have done some wrestling with, if way back in college. Except I didn't study, nor did I ever read Sir Gawain and The Green Knight. You? May have. I think Chaucer <laughs> is probably the closest I got yeah, to this material, too. to be honest with you. I can distinctly remember reading a fair amount of Chaucer, but yeah, I think this was new to me. So our ignorance is quite possibly a problem considering all of those same conversations I came across also mention how challenging and difficult to follow Lowry's adaptation is and how being familiar with the source material is not only useful, but instructive since Lowry apparently deviates in revealing ways. As regular listeners know, when time permits, you're a proponent of reading the source material first. The movie, in these instances, providing a compelling push to read something you've wanted to anyway, often for some time. Did Lowry's mercurial take on the Arthurian tale make you regret not giving the Middle English a go? Sending you to the verse or, I don't know, Wikipedia to try to make some sense of it? Or... Are the stories of the Green Knight's arduousness mere myth? Man, this would have been a great occasion to do that. I'll, I'll fess up. I didn't even, I didn't consider it. And I think because I wasn't clear, even though word of mouth or expectation for this movie has been going on for quite some time, I thought it was really just kind of a, um, a mashup of different legends. Certainly had heard that Sir Gawain was affiliated with this story familiar with that name, but I thought Lowry was kind of doing his own thing. So it wasn't until after seeing it that I realized it was an actual adaptation. So I should have done that. I feel uh, a little remiss about that opportunity, but then I think maybe this is a case that would prove your point, Adam, uh, where you like mm -hmm. not to, because I would have hated, and I try not to do this when I read adaptations, I don't do it, as I've said recently, to make sure the movie gets it right. That's not why I do it. But I would have hated to have been trying to trace the connections while watching this movie of any sort, simply because my favorite thing about this movie is that it's in an incantation. And it's in an incantation that completely cast me under its spell. Uh, and I just sat and absorbed and soaked up this movie. And in retrospect, am probably glad that I could be in that world purely in a way that you talk about you like to be when, when things are made from literary sources. You don't want to have any of that going mm -hmm. on. In this case, I was glad that I was because it just struck me as a mood piece. It struck me as a riff on these sorts of legends. I don't know. Maybe I've, I've been meaning to do some reading and listen to some podcasts that more specifically compare the source material. Maybe the source mater material is something of a subversion of legends and myths already, that that was built into this. But to me, this kind of felt like a very modern take on what it means to be a myth, to tell a myth, uh, even though it looks 
very um, old school in terms of a sword and sorcery movie. Um, and so I like that combination of have like looking like one thing, but kind of um, operating mm-hmm. in a different manner. I think that's a balancing act that Lowry in the film pulls off really well. And I might not have been able to appreciate it as much if I had uh, had that literary background at my fingertips. See, I love it. I just put it there for you and you jump right to the conclusion I wanted you to that I've always been right. And you should read the source material after you've seen the movie and processed it. That seems like a bit of an abstraction of what I just said, but if, if that'll help you sleep tonight. <laughs> well, abstraction maybe applies to this conversation about the Green Knight. And one of the things I did definitely appreciate about it gets at this idea, perhaps of subversion, maybe our expectations of a typical sword and sorcery tale. This is a medieval film with supernatural elements that leans into them in fantastical ways visually in a few key sequences, but also just in terms of its overall use of color, but that reflects the dirtiness and the dankness and the literal darkness of the period in really interesting ways. This isn't First Night. And maybe that's not fair because I've never seen that movie. I only remember trailers of First Night. And I looked at some screenshots today to make sure I wasn't completely out there. But that Sean Connery tale with Richard Gere, right? And Julia Orman, where everyone just looks gorgeous. And they've got perfect hair and perfectly white teeth and crisp clothing. And they're all brightly lit. Right. And and I want to be clear, I'm not praising this film for its verisimilitude or its authenticity, but it's more in the way it applies that overall aesthetic. I mean, I read somewhere that Barry Lyndon is an inspiration for David Lowry, but there are not even any candles here. <laughs> when you're when you're indoors in this movie, and sometimes even when you're outdoors, you can barely make out what is happening and who's doing it. And where that pays off, or at least it did for me, is when... Gawain steps outside for the first time during the day to begin his journey. There's not even any golden rays of sun or anything like that. And yet the light is still so bright that as a viewer, you're initially stunned by it. Like you've been in a cave for a week and you just emerged. Well, in a way, Gawain has been in a cave metaphorically, for a lot more than a week. We get the sense, even just in that first 20 minutes of this film, that he has been living this sort of sheltered existence, and nothing that he has seen or done to this point has prepared him for what he's going to encounter on this journey. It's almost as if when he steps out into light, he's got new eyes, and we experience that with him as viewers. And I loved the costuming and the makeup that they used on the King and Queen, Sean Harris and Kate Dickey here. They're gaunt. They're sickly. Yeah. They even seem to have a little bit of, I don't know what to call it other than some grayness that is starting to just overtake them physically. And it makes them somehow otherworldly, but pitifully human at the exact same time. And Harris is one of these actors who I haven't seen in a ton of things. He's always interesting on screen. I think it's because he always seems very, very sinister. It's those eyes. It's those those dark, dark eyes. But here, he is so quiet and deliberate and tender. And again, he overall has a small part in the movie, but he's so deliberate and tender that he comes across almost how a king might really be. 
a king yeah. of his age and his attributes who can't muster the same force and bravado that he used to, but also doesn't have to. He looks and he sounds weak, but he kind of uses that frailty as as a strength. Yeah, I, I, I agree. I was mesmerized by his performance, even though it is a small role. He He just manages to make that combination feel very real of weakness, but regalness. He still holds that and he holds it over Gawain too. You know, mm-hmm. you can see that there's this respect there I, and he's, if I'm following it, the King is his uncle. Um, yes. right. And so, mm-hmm. um, they kind you get a sense of that relationship, which was distant, grows closer in this prologue crucially, and is really the reason you feel why Gawain takes on this challenge, which gets him into all this trouble because someone asks him as he's, um, you know, just kind of running through one of the pubs or whatever they have in this, this, um, castle, are you a knight? Or he says, I, I not, not yet. You know, it's like, he doesn't mm-hmm. want to be one, right? He's enjoying this life of privilege as a member of royalty, even though it's a very dark and <laughs> dingy life, it's the best you could have in this time and place. And I think, you know, you describe that landscape opening up what this movie established and it, it, you know, realism, is that the right word to use? I don't know, but few movies like this give you the sense that the castle and the village surrounding it inside the walls are really there as a, a, a place of protection from the outside, mm-hmm. maybe an invading army, but in this movie also whatever other mystical elements might be out there. So that when those gates open and Gowan steps out, yeah, it's not into a a nice sunny area. I mean, it's very misty and, Mm -hmm. and it's the landscapes here are so mordant and they just seem to seep into you. Um, but, but it's very different from what's inside the castle and even inside that village. And I love every landscape that we traverse here, especially that one sequence where the air itself is like this acrid orange. Everything just seems cast again with a spell. Every land that he goes to seems to be cast under its own spell. Um, And it's it's just mesmerizing. Now, you mentioned Barry Lyndon, and I think that is a crucial touch point, maybe not so much visually, but just in a couple of ways, the performance here by Dev Patel, mm. very much what I think what we get from Ryan O'Neill, uh, you know, maybe Patel is a little more in on the joke than Ryan O'Neill was, right. but this is, you know, Green Knight, I would say is not as much of a parody as Kubrick's period costume epic was, but it's certainly a subversion of myth and legend. It's It's a deflation of myths and legends. Um, rather than an inflation of those ideas. And Patel's performance is crucial to that because he's doing so much at once. This is, Gawain wants to, he impulsively takes on this challenge from the Green Knight in the opening prologue, right? Um, before he went to that dinner, you get a sense he'd, he doesn't want anything to do with anything like this. But he has a crucial conversation with his uncle, the king. This opportunity presents itself and he jumps forward. So at the same time, this is a character who wants to become a knight, but doesn't really have the character as we expect for it. And part of the journey is to discovering is him discovering, do I really want to become a knight? Mm -hmm. Um, what, if I want to, can I become a knight? And then really in this sort of scenario, 
there's going to be a legend told about me. What control do I have over that legend? Um, and, and you get a sense that these are the questions Lowry is interested in, which are very different questions than a sword and sorcery medieval epic that simply wants to give us a heroic, gallant knight. Now, mm-hmm. Patel can also play that. And there are instances where Lowry's camera frames him like the heroic knight. But then there are moments like, how, how about this one, Adam? This moment of performance, which I love. Gawain has come across this battlefield. Everyone's dead. The battle is over. And um, the, he comes across a scavenger played by uh, Barry Kagan plays him. Mm-hmm. And at this point, Gawain is holding this axe, massive axe. And Kagan asks him, uh, do you use that? axe have you used that axe and he says here and there like trying to play the knight right and then the scavenger says here and points to the battlefield where all the corpses were mm-hmm. and gawain just says there and it's just a wonderful like backtrack from his bold claim yes where you can say it's very comic it's funny but he it also gets at the heart of this character where he doesn't know what he wants to be he doesn't know what he's capable of being um and all of those are tied up in this performance that is gallant in times, but also self-deprecating at times, very funny. Um, It's just, it's a really wonderful performance. I think a very unique performance for a film like this. Yeah. I think the strength of the performance in that scene and in the film overall is that Patel doesn't play the equivocations. He doesn't play the contradictions. There are times where he acts with nobility and times where he acts with ignobility. He acts with honor and dishonor. He portrays himself as a gallant knight, maybe someone who is a little bit more mighty than he truly is. And then when it suits him, or maybe when sometimes it's necessary, he's willing to tell anyone who will listen that, of course, he's not really a knight. Patel, I think, is subtle and he's straightforward. It's not so much a matter of him playing kind of self-deception or a character that isn't self-aware, but he's just playing it as if he's human. He plays it as if he's human, someone who, like all of us, embodies all of those contradictions. And I was mentioning the the darkness and the effect that had on me as a viewer, that kind of obscuring effect and that disorienting effect, almost a, a cloaking that Lowry employs here, it really is effective as well in the scene that instigates his whole journey. It's when he encounters the Green Knight at the King's Court. And I only fully realized how little sense I had of the space and the people in it when it cuts out to a wide shot for the first time. And it's appropriate dramatically when he does it. I don't have my notes, but it happens only after a moment of real significance in the scene. It's still overall a very still moment. And this is a very still movie for the most part, but it's either when the green knight is approaching or it's, it's right after everything has kind of gone down between him and Gowan and everything that leads up to that. Josh is close-ups or medium close-ups or two shots of the King and queen, or you see two or three people, the other knights and the people that they're dining with at the round table, but nothing establishes the space or gives you any sense of the regalness of King Arthur's court until it finally it finally pulls back, which is completely opposite of how any other director would approach this material. Yeah, I mean, Lowry is he, he's unhurried, I think, as a director from what I've seen, you know, even something 
as varied as Pete's Dragon compared to A Ghost Story. I think both of those movies you could describe as unhurried. He lets scenes breathe. He lets the images do a lot of the work. He lets us sit in these sequences. And that's certainly the case in this prologue confrontation with the Green Knight. And the the knight himself is just so masterfully envisioned, uh, voiced by Ralph Innocent, this mm-hmm. booming you know, voice that makes you realize you are encountering something more than human here. Even if you just heard and didn't see the night, you would understand that. But how about the the face of bark he's given? Um, and it, it's almost like he's at once a tree, but with that axe, he could easily cut tr- cut trees down. He's like mm-hmm. a tree demon as well. And even the sound design at work here to depict him, whenever he moves, it's like branches are crashing or cracking in the forest. So that is just an amazing, I mean, what a way to set up your movie. And, and in a way, you know, I, I've seen some, I've seen cinema score stuff and, um, you know, I have my own, my older daughter works at a movie theater now. So I have my own spy, Adam, to give us on the ground reports of people coming out of the theater, what they're acting like. And she he was saying, yeah, people are coming out a little, a little, you know, yeah. confused compared to what they might have expected. And I can see why to a degree, because after this sequence, it sets up this confrontation to come. There is action in there. There is violence. I would say it's still a little different than what you'd expect, but we don't really get anything like that in the rest of the film. Instead, we get, as I said, these mood pieces and I loved it. I thought it was great, but it's another way of undercutting expectations of subverting what we might think, if not from, again, the original text, certainly from most sword and sorcery movies that we get. But that prologue, what I mean, what a way to kick things off. You mentioned some of Lowry's other films, including A Ghost Story, which is still my favorite film of his. And I was going back to look at my notes, and in my notes, I had the plot synopsis pasted from somewhere. And it's actually funny to me, Josh, how much of it applies to this film, or you feel like could be lifted out and you could make it fit. The description is recently deceased, a white sheeted ghost returns to his suburban home to console his bereft wife, only to find that in his spectral state. So again, cut out the suburban wife and white sheeted ghost, but only to find in his spectral state, he has become unstuck in time, forced to watch passively as the life he knew and the woman he loves slowly slip away. Increasingly unmoored, the ghost embarks on a cosmic journey through memory and history, confronting life's ineffable questions and the enormity of existence. That, that kind of feels like the movie... We just saw in the theaters, doesn't it? It does. I do like the contradiction to that, though, in that Gowan is very much bound by time. He has this one year to return and confront the Green Knight again. And I love the production design uh, element where there is a puppet show out in the village that is counting this down. It's like a clock that has a a wooden figure and it charts Mm -hmm. the seasons and you get a sense of how that is bearing down on on Gowan. So yeah, it it has very much in common in in terms of like um, this existential state he finds himself in, but at the same time, he's got a deadline bearing down on him. He's got a deadline and yet... As he's on this journey, if you think about maybe the most indelible image in this film, which is him, this is not a spoiler, looking at one point at a vision of 
his own corpse or imagining yeah. his body, his what skeleton there. The whole sequence with Winifred and him jumping into the water. And even when he goes later to the house where the Lord and Lady Joel Edgerton, Alicia Vikander play those characters, when he goes to their house and he wakes up and it feels to him as if he's maybe been asleep for a week and they tell him, no, it's only been a night. He is a little bit like the ghost Casey Affleck plays. He's a little bit unmoored in time yeah. himself. And I bring up a ghost story because I actually do think the movie is asking a lot of the same questions, exploring some of the same material, only with actually, maybe ironically, a much clearer resolution. And we can't we can't go there. We're not going to get into maybe how this movie ends or what lesson we think it's imparting. But Lowry's a director who's traded in myths and legends before The Old Man and the Gun, the Robert Redford movie very much is about that. Ain't Them Body Saints, his debut film even. But I do think it's even more simple than that if you go back to a ghost story. The element that you can't separate from the idea of legends, either the stories someone is crafting or the characters within them is mortality or immortality. This idea of your tale outliving you, your story, your legend outliving you. And the attractiveness of immortality because of the fear of death. And again, I mentioned the most indelible image in this film is that that skeleton, a vision of his death. And what I think Gawain has to confront beyond any question of choosing to be a knight or not a knight, a good person or a great person or a bad person, are the costs of the decisions that lead to whatever type of immortality a human being can achieve. That's my, that's my reading of this film, Josh, without trying to actually give away anything that happens within yeah, this film. Cause it's, it's a ending we should talk about in spoiler at some point. Cause it's really, it's really challenging Threw me for a loop in the moment and gave me a lot to consider the having seen it once. And from what I remember of a ghost story, I think the distinction to me is I found a ghost story ending up in a surprisingly hopeful place, given um, what we saw mostly in the movie in a way that somewhat, I mean, I love a ghost story. I think it made my top 10 list that year, but somewhat undercuts everything that came before sort of, sort of the grieving that I think was the life force of that movie. It was a grief movie to me. Um, and here, and we're a little bit back to Barry Lyndon, I see on a first viewing how this movie ends as kind of a pretty good joke. Uh, a, a joke, I won't say a joke on who, because that might get into spoiler territory, um, but I do think it does maybe also offer an answer to the question in terms of mortality and in terms of what control do you have over the legend that's going to be mm -hmm. told about you? The answer is none. Like it's, it's preordained by the need for a myth, uh, this society's need for legends. Uh, it goes back to that battlefield. I, I don't think I mentioned, but another thing the scavenger says is he claims the king was in the fight and killed, what was it, like 90 or 900 men? 900 men, Not, yeah. yeah. A ridiculous number. He tells Gawain, yeah, the king was here and killed 900 men. We know, as Gawain knows, and as you described, the king is back at the castle, barely alive. So why does the scavenger say that? Because of the deep need to kind of believe in these mythical, legendary figures, these humans that can do more than I can do. Um, but maybe I could someday be like them. 
these humans that can live longer, that could confront the Green Knight um, and, you know, make the right choice, let's just say. And I found that last 10 seconds of this movie mm-hmm. is kind of is kind of a a punchline saying, no, it's the legend that's going to have the last say no matter what you do, <laughs> even if you're even if the legend is about you. See, it's funny. I read it as exactly the opposite. And if I remember correctly, we differed a little bit on the hopefulness or hopelessness of the end of a ghost story. And here we're reversed as well. I actually think the ending, though I get the idea of there being a punchline or joke behind it, I actually see it as very hopeful. And again, that may be something that we have to dive into more can, another can I time. Ask, by hopeful, do you mean noble? Would you would you say no. also? No. See, that's, that's really my point okay. when it goes back to this idea of the movie not really for me being a matter of choosing to be a quote unquote great person or a good person or a noble person, a noble Uh king or a noble knight or noble anything. It really is more about this question of what you value in terms of what you want that, that myth to be. I I think we're kind of dancing around the same thing in slightly different terms. And I think that applies as well to the scene you mentioned where I think you're reading of it, Barry Kagan in that line where he's talking about King Arthur and all the bodies he single-handedly killed. I think your reading of it is undeniably true. And that's what we're supposed to take away from it. At the same time, the other thing I took away from it was the idea that we've seen him leave this castle. We talked about how much we thought Sean Harris's King embodied a certain kind of nobility, but also uh, a frailty, but there was this kind of regalness to him that I believe Gawain aspires to be. And then when he actually gets out into the world and he's walking along just rows and rows of bodies, Mm -hmm. what, what Barry Kagan's line, what the scavenger's line reminds us of is the king maybe wasn't really there physically, but was he not there in the sense that he was the one who probably sanctioned it? Yeah, he's responsible. He's responsible. So whether he was physically there or physically responsible or not, that kind of nobility, that grandeur that Gawain aspires to, well, this is what actually comes of it. Mm-hmm. It's that. It's the responsibility for that type of, of death and destruction. Yeah, I think that I think that's at play there in that sequence as well. So you mentioned her, but I want to go back to Alicia Vikander, who mm-hmm. we both absolutely loved in Ex Machina, the Alex Garland film. And here it's a, a dual role she has. Um, this woman that Gawain hangs out with uh, before he leaves back in the castle. You get a sense that she's not royalty. You know, he meets her in the pubs or or whatever. And then she plays the regal wife of this. I guess he's like a a game hunter who has his own castle out in the wilderness played mm-hmm. by Joel Edgerton. Great Joel Edgerton performance as well. I feel like this is, this is the kind of role Edgerton needs to play these slightly suspicious, physically mm. intimidating, yeah. um, a man, right? He's so good too, but the candor is gets a soliloquy here and the camera just, you know, moves in on her, on her mm-hmm. and she talks about nature and you mentioned colors. She specifically cites the greenness and uh, how much greenness there is once we do get out into, and it's a mossy, as I said, moored into greenness, but it's definitely part of the color scheme once we get out beyond the castle. And she talks about how it is this force, nature's this force that is going to cover up 
and swallow anything that man can build, right? It's it's just like this castle that my husband has built, the castle you came from, it's all going to go down as history proceeds. And of course, there's a connection where the Green Knight as well, who is this weird mystical combination of humanity and nature. And I just think like that, I'm trying to remember what else she's been in. A couple of things I know, we probably reviewed a few, but this is where... I saw the actor who was in Ex Machina where the camera just sitting on their face and they're quietly telling you something and you just can't look away. They're com- mm-hmm. it, She's casting another spell. It, this is another one of the movie's spells is basically this soliloquy. She's so fantastic in it. She is. And you mentioned they're mingling in the pubs together. I mean, it's more than that. It's more explicit than that. The movie opens, I think, in a brothel that she works yeah, in. Yeah, yeah. And I was... Worried at first because through those first few scenes where we see Vikander and we see her interactions with Patel, let's just say this is a movie that probably doesn't overall, actually, if you're one of these people who scores by this at home, doesn't pass the Bechtel test. And it certainly doesn't early on in the film where she's just sort of clinging to his character and really only defines herself by him and his potential or not to love her. You were worried that's all she was going to. And you're really worried that's all she's going to get to do in this film. And of course, because she's Alicia Vikander, she still makes that interesting. Even that is still compelling to watch. But man, to your point, does the performance and does the role, I think, pay off later in the film. I can imagine that she was reading the script. And when she got to that point, said, I'll do this movie just so I can have that three minutes on screen. Yeah, absolutely. Hopefully they showed her that first because they might not have gotten her to read all the way through otherwise. The Green Knight is currently playing in limited release. If you've seen it and agree or disagree with our takes, you can email us feedback at filmspotting.net. Chivalry is going to meet shenanigans when we play Massacre Theater. That's up next. Plus a less traveled corner of the world of Wong Kar Wai. Fallen Angels. Stay with us. chosen for his or her own completely unique set of abilities. Hey guys, sorry I'm late. Had to go number two. Good to know. Margot Robbie and Viola Davis bringing their completely unique set of skills to the new The Suicide Squad, not to be confused with 2016's Suicide Squad, directed by David Ayer. The Suicide Squad opens in theaters this weekend. It's also, for a limited time, available on HBO Max. The trailer tells us that the new The Suicide Squad comes from the horribly beautiful mind of James Gunn, Gunn best known as the director of both Guardians of the Galaxy movies for Marvel. Along with Robbie and Davis, both of whom appeared in the 2016 film, the new movie introduces us to Idris Elba's Bloodsport, John Cena's Peacemaker, and, among several others, a character called King Shark that's voiced by Sylvester Stallone. Oh, Josh. (laughs) Notably absent from this squad, Jared Leto's Joker. You saw 2016's non-the Suicide Squad. Your one-star review of that movie opens by describing it as, quote, a tentpole wannabe so helpless 
that it succumbs to structural chaos right from the start. You could put this movie's scenes on shuffle, and it would almost make as much sense. The new The Suicide Squad? Is it better? Well, no, because they— Can't get much worse. (laughs) True, but they missed the golden opportunity of having King Stallone's King Shark Shadowbox. I mean, come on. That would have been been four stars. Yes, yes. As you said, of course it's better. It would be hard not to be better. I I think— James Gunn is probably, I'm never going to be a connoisseur of kill shot comedy, okay, where where most of the punchlines are uh, how someone Actual is- Actual punchlines? Well, worse than that, right? <laughs> how someone is filleted, essentially. Uh-huh. Just not my thing. I don't know. Call me weird. But if it's going to be palatable, I guess James Gunn is the director for me because mildly appreciated both Guardians of the Galaxy films, kind of the- the cruelty and the callousness was what held me back from liking it as much as most people do. But Gunn is a real filmmaker who does incredibly inventive things with the camera that adds to the story. He's funny. He gets casts that are funny and knows how to make them funny together. And so already you have two things that the first Suicide Squad film did not have. So yeah, I mean, this is a mild here. You're going to love this, Adam. I'm leaning towards, haven't logged it yet. I'm leaning toward your your favorite two and a half out of five star review on Letterboxd. And I think I'm going to give it that little heart. I'm just going to confound you and give it that little heart because it's one that, yeah, okay. Eh, but yeah, I recommend it. If this is your hmm. sort of thing, you're going to enjoy this sort of movie. As we said, you know, having... Margot Robbie back for Harley Quinn. That is still an incredibly compelling character to me, and she's funny as well here. Now, Viola Davis, I would say maybe her Amanda Waller, who's kind of this bureaucratic mastermind behind the Suicide Squad program, maybe it might be better served in the first movie. Actually, they kind of, they pull their punches here. And this is something that Gunn does do. He he wants to be, he wants to come off as nihilistic in these movies. But then again, you know, he wants Rocket to be cuddly in the Guardians and King Shark to be cuddly too. This is a movie that is, you know, not as nihilistic as it pretends, even though it is rated R. Guardians films aren't. Definitely pushes things further. Um, but at the end of the day, it kind of pulls it pu- its punches when it comes to the anti-heroism thing. And that relates without spoilers to how they handle the Amanda Waller character, who is is, you know, really pure evil in the first film and that's what's interesting about her but idris elba also a plus he's kind of the straight man here but handles that really well and i will not let's just say this ends in a climax with a giant cyclops starfish from space and it works i mean it's like Hmm. it's sort of it's sort of like so many marvel movies end in these enormous catastrophes that just exhaust you and i will say that this one intrigued me and made me laugh, even though it was kind of done on that scale. So a very limited recommendation from me. I'm probably giving it more credit because of the previous film, but I really think if if people are into this brand, again, this kill shot superhero comedy, they're going to like this one. You might have convinced me to watch this movie on HBO Max. Okay. I definitely wouldn't go to the theater where it's currently playing in wide release, but I might watch it from the comfort of my couch on HBO Max. Then please report back. If you see it and agree or disagree with Josh's take, email us, feedback at filmspotting.net. Next week here on Film Spotting, we're going to talk about the new film from French director Leos Carex. It's Annette, starring Adam Driver and Marion Cotillard. Is this good or bad, Josh, that you will now, by the time we record, 
have had at least two weeks to try to process this movie. Oh, I mean, I this isn't going to make you feel any better, but I feel like I could probably use five or six. Mm. And even at the end, I might just throw my hands up anyways. So, yeah, there's there's a lot going on in Annette. It's a musical. It is. How hard can it be? It's a musical. Okay. With songs, with songs from the band Sparks, Mm -hmm. having seen the Edgar Wright documentary and knowing how twisted and inventive their minds are, it probably gives me a little bit of an idea, Josh, of what you are alluding to. The movie debuted earlier this summer at the Cannes Film Festival to one of the fest's famously lengthy standing ovations. There were some critics who were left dumbfounded by it. We'll see where we land. Also next week, we'll have results of the current film spotting poll, which asks... What is your favorite Adam Driver performance? Simple question. Shouldn't be that hard, Josh. Well, we have some options anyway. Charlie in a Marriage Story. Patterson in Patterson. Flip Zimmerman from Spike Lee's Black Klansman. Gotta put Kylo Ren in there from Star Wars. And then Francisco Garupe from Martin Scorsese's Silence. Other will be an option for you, too. And it looks like the lead performances of those are... Maybe no surprise in the lead in this poll. Those would be Patterson and Marriage Story. If you are one of those people who wants to give some more love to Al Cody or Officer Ronnie, you can do that at filmspotting.net. We'll share the results and some of your comments on next week's show. Speaking of great listener comments, these giveaways that we've been doing for the past few months on the show, we've had some great Blu-ray sets to give away and We're currently giving away some Quiet Place Part 2 Blu-ray discs, Josh. We asked people to write in. This is all they had to do to enter. They just really had to expose themselves and their deepest fears to the world. Be exposed here on Film Spotting. And these were picked at random. You are going to detect, at least through the first three, a common theme. A movie that apparently did have quite an impact on a handful of our listeners. And Megan Riley wrote in, and Josh, she started by saying, if you read this on the show, I'll regret it because I have students who listen to the podcast. But here we go. So Megan Megan was brave enough to write in. (laughs) At least she will be rewarded for her humiliation by getting one of those Blu-rays of A Quiet Place Part 2. Please proceed. My most memorable horror film experience was the summer of 1999. I was an intern at the Theater at Monmouth, a Shakespeare Summerstock Theater in Monmouth, Maine. I made a whole $50 per week and was housed in the attic of a family that lived in the town a couple of blocks from the theater. I'm already scared, Adam. That Mm. was the summer that The Blair Witch Project came out, and it's hard to believe now how much this movie affected people, but it really did. I knew that it wasn't real, but a bunch of us went to Augusta to see it one night, and I was absolutely fine until the last frame with Mike standing in the corner. Horror films don't really scare me because they are fake, but striking visual imagery can make me fall to pieces. And that moment froze me in my seat, and my friends had to talk me through a panic attack after the film ended. It was the only time a horror film ever scared me. And word got around the theater, of course. To get up to the attic bedroom where I lived, you had to walk up two flights upstairs through a room in the house. That was unfinished and kind of spooky. Oh, no. So I spent the rest of the summer on edge because it reminded me of the basement at the end of that movie. And one night, the other interns dressed a blow-up doll. Come on. Come on. In a plaid flannel shirt and stood it in the corner of that room so that I would see it. Thankfully, my roommate saw it before I did and took it down. (laughs) So I never actually fell victim to that prank. The rest of the summer was filled with interns leaving piles of sticks outside each other's rooms. (laughs) 
Holy that cow. Is, now that's smart, but the plaid flannel shirt and cruel. the the blob doll, yeah, that is that is an arrestable offense. Yeah, you don't recover from that. <laughs> Here's Jobert Atienza. Ever since I was a little kid, I loved horror movies, especially ones that deal with the supernatural. I'm not sure why I do, because neither of my parents are particularly keen on that genre. In fact, my very religious mom actively avoids those movies. So, of course, my most memorable horror movie watching experience involved my parents. It was the summer of 99, and I begged my parents to take me to see The Blair Witch Project. Neither of them knew what this movie was, but because I was a nerd kid that was aware of the online marketing of this documentary, I was stoked. I only told them it was supposed to be a horror movie, and surprisingly, my mom agreed to come along. They did not have a good time. More specifically, my mom did not have a good time. I could hear her breathing heavy in her seat and saw how hard she gripped the armrests when the three student filmmakers ran screaming out of their tents and into the Maryland woods. After the movie, my mom didn't say a word on the ride home. When we got there, she grounded me. What? I hope it was worth it, Joe Bear. P.S. She's since loosened up a bit, and I've gotten her to watch movies like A Quiet Place and The Conjuring. I would like to show them Hereditary, but that one might be a little too much for her. And Joe Bear, you're probably too old to get grounded, so don't do it. <laughs> don't do it. I thought you were going to say go for it. <laughs> well, I, I'm saying he would have to give in. It's his mother, and he really can't suffer that shame at this age. Here's Justin Flagel from Niles, Michigan. The naive combination of being 18 years old and living through the early days of the internet led to a taste of my own medicine after seeing the Blair Witch Project in theaters in 1999. My friend Jeff and I were movie-going nerds and could normally open up the weekly newspaper and cross off the entire list on the Now Playing page. We saw it all, awkwardly buying tickets together for romantic comedies or dragging each other into what we both knew were going to be terrible films. We were both excited for the release of the Blair Witch Project. The internet buzz around the movie and the rumors of the footage being authentic had built an energy we had never experienced in our favorite theater. We were blown away by the movie and haunted by the story and imagery. Thinking myself clever on the way home, I took advantage of the complete terror we just experienced and drove us the long way home, <laughs> taking us through the dark country dirt roads framed by trees on all sides. I was grinning as I sensed Jeff's discomfort and laughed when I heard him ask just what I was doing. The laughs were brief, though as I remembered that I was also terrified by the movie and that the woods looked eerily like those we had just witnessed on screen. The tiny dirt road was too narrow to turn around without an extended stop, something I had no interest in doing. So I white-knuckled the steering wheel the entire drive home, eyes shifting from side to side, watching for the Blair Witch. <laughs> Getting a taste of your own medicine. And Josh, all the entries weren't about the Blair Witch. Too we did bad. have a few other. Yeah, we did have I a mean, few more horror picks. I am loving this. As someone who has Blair Witch as the number two horror film of all time, this is yeah. just all validation. And again, that moment, that moment is truly terrifying. We have done our top five most terrifying movie moments on this show. And I'm pretty sure that moment in the basement was on my list as well. Chris Green in Clinton Township, Michigan writes in, Hi guys, love the show. And my most memorable horror movie viewing experience isn't so much visual as it is audio. Let me explain. I was in third grade and my family had just moved to Kentucky. I'm already we scared. Had a very, yeah, very creepy house. Get more scared, Josh, which used to belong to my grandparents. One night, not sure if it was ABC or CBS, one of them had the movie of the week, which just so happened to be the William Friedkin classic, The Exorcist. I wasn't watching, obviously, but my mom was. As I tried to distract myself playing with toys on the couch with my brother, Linda Blair's voice was scaring me beyond anything I had ever heard. Thank God I never turned around to look. I was petrified. Needless to say, years later, I did watch the film, and yes, it terrified me all over again. As much as the film was praised for its visuals, the sound design is amazing. 
Thanks, guys. Keep up the good work. Now, here's what's great about this, Josh. And I didn't fully realize it until just now reading it. I not only had a similar experience or the same experience with that movie, I basically had the exact same experience as Chris Green. We must be about the same age. I was in about third grade when I think this happened. I want to peg it to be 1983. I have told this story on the show before, but I don't know if I've ever told it with you. I remember vividly being in my bedroom and I had the record of the empire strikes back. You could, nice. you could listen to yep. the movie and oh, it yeah. had, it had the vinyl that opened up and oh. I think it had the scenes or something. You could kind of yeah, follow all along, the, right? All the pictures I had it. Yep. And I'm sitting in my bedroom getting lost in the empire strikes back and just outside my door in our family room, my parents <laughs> were watching on TV, the exorcist. <laughs> and that was my first encounter with the exorcist was hearing Linda Blair's voice <clears throat> and it unnerved me like you can't imagine. I was horrified and I picked up that it was the movie, the exorcist. And I just knew that I never, never really wanted to encounter that movie. That's how much just the sound of it from the other room scared me. And for years, I made sure I avoided the movie. I've also told this story before. My next encounter with it was when I was in high school and I was flipping channels one night, late at night, down in that same family room all by myself, just flipping channels. I land on HBO or something. It's a close up of her face and the yellow eyes. No. And I, I, I think I, I think I ran up to my parents' room. I might've been 14. I think I ran up to my parents' bedroom. So yeah, I have a long tortured history with The Exorcist. And now, as you know, much to your chagrin, I- adore the film you do and i can count another thing the exorcist does terribly it ruined the empire strikes back for you i mean you could probably <laughs> never listen to those yeah. wonderful chords again without picturing or at least hearing linda blair screaming over them wouldn't it be great to have that vinyl now oh i mean gosh i'm, tr I'm trying to think if it's in somebody's basement somewhere but no i think it's gone it's gone mm. We have one more winner here, Josh. Megan Burke from Oxford, Mississippi. Like Josh, my most memorable horror movie viewing was a far too young exposure to an 80s horror flick. I was at church camp, exclamation point, and the counselors got so tired of dealing with us that they put on Nightmare on Elm Street. <laughs> I mean, okay. If I, I had a know, nickel. I got to know the name of this church camp, Megan. The image of Tina in the body bag still haunts my nightmares. Now that is speaking of my list. That's my number one nightmare was on it? Elm street. Yeah. Top 10 horror films of all time. That's my number one. Totally, totally inappropriate for a church camp. Megan, what was going on there? <laughs> Congratulations to Megan and all of our winners. A quiet place. Part two is currently available to rent on most platforms. It is also available for purchase on DVD and Blu-ray. Our winners don't have to purchase it. They get a free copy. We'll have it mailed out to you. Email us back, feedback at filmspotting.net to claim your prize, and please include your address. This week over on our sister podcast, The Next Picture Show, they discuss the new Roadrunner, a film about Anthony Bourdain alongside Terry Zweigoff's Crumb from 1994 about the underground comics artist R. Crumb. Next week, Josh, here you go. Maybe we'll really see how much The Green Knight subverts the conventions of classic sword and sorcery films. The Green Knight up against... John Borman's Excalibur.
Yeah, I cannot wait for that pair of shows. I remember Excalibur being pretty earnest, but it's been a while since I've seen it. So that should be a good conversation. Next Picture Show hosts are Tasha Robinson, Keith Phipps, Scott Tobias, and Genevieve Kosky. New episodes post every Tuesday, wherever you get your podcasts, and you can get more information at nextpictureshow.net. One way you can support our show is to join the Film Spotting family over on Patreon. We did just drop a little bit late, but we gave you July's bonus content a discussion of From Russia with Love with special guest Bond expert Chris Klemek covered a lot of ground that included mentions of Sam Neill's James Bond audition. Yes. Johnny Cash's unused Thunderball theme. Chris was filled with knowledge and insights. And you can get that if you are a film spotting family member on Patreon. We're going to keep going with Bond, too. The plan right now for August, again, in anticipation of No Time to Die, a Roger Moore installment. This is our sweet spot, Adam. This is this is when you and I fell in love oh, yeah. with Bond. And so, again, we will put three options out there for family members on Patreon to vote. I think, I don't know, do we want to do his first, which was Live and Let Die? I think The Spy Who Loved Me, generally considered his best. And then for pure 80s more, we could go with for your eyes only. Now, there's also 80s more like Octopussy, View uh-huh. to a Kill, Moonraker. How great yep. is Moonraker, Adam? But, uh, you know, those aren't generally, I think Moore was a little on the older side for those. So they're not generally considered yeah. his best. I'd still, for nostalgia's sake, I wouldn't mind revisiting one of those. But uh, we'll see. We'll see what the family members choose. Yeah. The one triptych there is the first more, best more, 80s more, as Josh said, or best more, Spy Who Loved Me, worst more, perhaps, Either Octopussy or A View to a Kill, where Roger Moore was 59 years old, or Space Moore, Moonraker. <laughs> now, we can't really go wrong with either because I'm hoping and praying that The Spy Who Loved Me wins. If it is, in fact, the one that most considered the best Roger Moore Bond installment and because I haven't seen it. Whereas every other movie that's been mentioned so far, I have seen. Whether I remember them well or not, I've seen them. The exception there would be Moonraker. So I maybe lean that way, Josh, where... I do at least have two options in The Spy Who Loved Me and Moonraker that I haven't seen, and I'm guessing one of those two wins as opposed to View to a Kill or Octopussy. Yeah, I, I told Sam this on Slack. Moon, you love the right stuff. When I was that age— Don't say it out Moonraker, loud. Moonraker. Moonraker. That was my <laughs> the right stuff. You know, it's just— <laughs> That's the kind of um, astronaut I wanted to be, Adam. Ah, uh, well, some things can stay in slack, and they really should, Josh. <laughs> we also offer our listeners, in addition to that great bonus content, monthly trivia spotting access. Our next trivia spotting event is August 20th. It's a Friday night at 7 p.m. As of this moment, there are a few tickets available, and you can get that ticket only if you are a film spotting family member. Sign up now patreon.com slash film spotting let's get to massacre theater the part of the show where we perform a scene and you get a chance at winning a film spotting t-shirt a couple of weeks ago adam and i massacred this scene you surf too oh good lord man i'm just drifting around you know getting in touch with the ocean and stuff it's it's really pleasant it was yeah um i'm gonna head in before you go, actually, Peter, I just wanted to tell you, I was listening to Sarah's iPod the other day, and amidst the uh, interminable dross that's on that thing, I found one track that I, I quite liked, so I checked what it was, and it was actually 
one of yours. And it kind of reminded me of a dark, gothic Neil Diamond. That's like exactly what I'm going for. Right, yeah. That was Jason Siegel and Russell Brand in 2008's Forgetting Sarah Marshall. Siegel wrote the film. It was directed by Nicholas Stoller. Along with that massacre, we shared our top five beach scenes. So why that scene from Forgetting Sarah Marshall? Here's Albert Malafront in Pasadena, a film spotting family member. This week's Massacre Theater is one of my favorite comedies of the last 20 years. I assume that besides the obvious connection that the scene takes place on a beach, the other connection is that the film features the never-aging Paul Rudd, who we can all agree would be the only person capable of surviving the beach in old. Also a bit of a stretch, but Jason Segel's character is quite lovesick, so he may fit neatly with many characters inside the world of Wong Kar Wai. Oh, nice. Yeah, Albert, why why didn't they parachute Paul Rudd onto that beach to just save everyone? There you go. Yeah. That's what they should have done. We also heard from Sam Vargan in Los Angeles forgetting Sarah Marshall. I think one of the best and perhaps underrated entries in the Judd Apatow extended universe. The name Nick is a reference to Jason Siegel's Freaks and Geeks character, Nick Andopoulos. And Josh Charisma Machine Larson embodied Russell Brand like few could. My hat is off. Wow, I don't think I've gotten that one before. Yeah, I think only your wife has ever called you that. <laughs> That's all I need, so I'm good. <laughs> Yes, we did change the names to try to make it a little less obvious. Sam always includes some hints. We mentioned just before we delivered our amazing renditions that we weren't entirely sure what the names were references to. Indeed, Nick was a reference to Freaks and Geeks. And I think we called the female character in the scene, Anna, a reference to Kristen Bell in Frozen. Yes, sounds right. Okay. Sam, our producer. Very, very clever. Reach into the film spotting hat, Josh, and pick out this week's winner. That would be Tim Parker from Farmersville, Texas. Congratulations, Tim. Email feedback at filmspotting.net and we will set you up with your very own film spotting t-shirt. Would the tattoo so simple? 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 My dear boy, why do you say that? Why do you say tattoo? Well, you should say it like I said. We move on now to this week's edition of Massacre Theater, one in which we are going to change up our normal gender roles. Mm. I don't know if that is for better or for worse. And we will note for all the 90s kids out there that love this movie, that probably know every line by heart, that yes, we are we are daring to alter the script. <laughs> we, we love the dialogue, but it is kind of weird with a third character right. who just kind of randomly shouts out a line. So we changed it a little bit to make it work for Massacre Theater and... We hope it works for you. Yeah, I mean, normally we we treat these screenplays as, you know, untouchable. But when a movie is as bad as this, we kind of feel like it's it's fine. Sorry. Sorry, <laughs> okay. 90s kids. Other hints. Go to LarsonOnFilm.com and look for <laughs> one or one and a half star reviews. Oh, oh. So I have a question for you before we get into it. Mm. Are they doing accents here? Are we... I feel like it's in that that uncanny valley of accents. <laughs> That's exactly what it is, which is where all of my acting lives. <laughs> okay. So I am ready for this scene, Josh. You're, you're in your sweet spot. Let's do it then. <laughs> I, Let's uh, do it. You're going to give me. Yeah, you're going to give me the action and action. Would you speak to me? Ah, uh, to speak, but sir, my sex are marked by their silence. Oh, I would hear you speak if it cost me my ears. That as well, for I do not want silence in my life. Tell me your name. Tell me your name, woman. And what would you do with my name, Sir Hunter? Call me a fox, for that is all I am to you. A fox. 
Oh, well, then a fox you shall be until I find your name, my foxy lady. <laughs> and <laughs> scene. scene. Uh, I don't... I don't know. I'm, I'm a little, know? the gender reversal thing has me, um, just a little confused, Adam. <laughs> okay. But not, not because of me. We will just let that sit there, Josh. Okay. If you know what film we just massacred, email the movie's title along with your name and location to feedback at filmspotting.net. The deadline is Monday, August 23rd. Just sit there is also what my acting usually consists of. Hey, I think our accents were dead on this time around. Winner will be selected randomly from all the correct entries and announced in a couple of weeks. Allow me to translate. One's profession is very often determined by one's personality. The best thing about my profession is there's no need to make any decisions. Who's to die, when and where? It's all been decided. That's Leon Lai as hitman Wong Chi Ming in Wong Kar Wai's 1995 film Fallen Angels, the fourth film in our World of Wong Kar Wai marathon. This marathon, inspired by Wong's recent restoration of seven of his best-known films, all of which are included in the Criterion Collection's new World of Wong Kar Wai box set. I was glad to see Adam check today, and as of early August, they're still currently streaming on the Criterion channel. Now, as we mentioned earlier in the show, Fallen Angels originally conceived at the same time as Wong's previous film, the much-celebrated Chungking Express. And the characters here that we meet in Fallen Angels, they're meant to be, were meant to be included as a third chapter in Express. Now, in his review, Roger Ebert says of the film that to describe the plot is to miss the point. Fallen Angels takes the materials of the plot, the characters and what they do, and assembles them like a photo montage. At the end, you have impressions, not conclusions. So, Adam, one thing you brought up, I don't know if you would call this a quibble, but you mentioned with Chunking Express that the film would have felt complete if it had only focused on one of the two stories we got there, the one featuring Tony Leung's police officer and Fei Wong's quirky cafe worker. So, considering Fallen Angels, would you say it's more like that chapter of Express, which really did work for you, or the less striking companion piece from that film? Yeah, where's Tony Leung and Fei Wong when you really need them? Mm. I can't really agree with Roger Ebert on this one. This was my first relative disappointment of the marathon, Josh. Okay. Which surprised me because that's not how I felt through the first 20 to 30 minutes of the movie, where I was definitely intrigued enough by the central couple, by their relationship to each other, this hitman and hitman's, what, setup person? Yeah, kind of like a scout, right? She scouts yeah, the runner, locations. I think is what she is. Michelle Reese is the actress. I was definitely intrigued by their relationship, as I said, to each other, to the world. I thought that would be sustained, and the visual style of it was something that felt very different in some ways from Chunking Express, but also felt just as assured. It felt like a departure in the way you want to see a filmmaker take chances and take risks. It was experimental in really exciting ways. And the more I watched, the less of that I felt, the less I felt for the characters. These are characters I never connected with, which is a first in this marathon. There is a 
lot of character drama here, but none of the actual longing that I think has really come to define the characters in this marathon. There is an emotional component with a character's relationship to his father that, while not completely ineffective, feels like it's kind of tacked on to add that element of maybe a little bit of profundity or some sentimentality that the story otherwise could benefit from. There were multiple montages that, while they're striking, because of course they are, they're Wong Kar Wai montages, they felt to me like kind of pieces that could have been their own separate music videos rather than being components of a larger, more cohesive film. And we talked about the Chunking Express, my daughter's comment that it's a movie like his films largely are all vibe and no plot or less plot here. I felt like there was a lot of plot and that there's a lot of things happening. Just none of the things that are happening really matter. It was almost like almost like a parody of Wong Kar Wai in the sense that if you took all the yearning between characters that we saw on display, especially in Chunking Express and mixed it with the, the milieu and the style of as tears go by and days of being wild. And you get the, the elements of the music, the pop music voiceover, the connecting storylines and the way the stories mirror each other and all the self references. It, it felt like Wong unmistakably, but as if the style and the characters were all turned up to 11 mm. and something is just lost in that amplification. It was for me anyway. Yeah, that's interesting because major filmmakers often, not always, but often will have that movie that does feel like they've arrived at self-parody. And I don't think that's the case here. I, I, I didn't have quite as many issues with it. I think of like, that's how people describe Wes Anderson's Life Aquatic, right? Where everything- Including me. As you said, yeah, is just too heightened. Obviously, I don't feel that way, but I have with other filmmakers. So I think that is a phenomenon that exists. I would say this is definitely a lower tier. I mean, uh, I don't like the phrase minor Wong, but you know, like it's a lower tier from what we've seen before and the other things we've seen in previous years, but I still enjoyed it quite a bit. I do think you're on to a couple of things and it's interesting where you started. Where is Tony Leung? And I wonder if this is a, an example of, this is an auteurist marathon as so many of ours are. It's an auteurist box set that Criterion has put together. Have we underestimated the contributions that particular performers have done mm. to create Wong Kar Wai magic? Maybe not. I mean, it's something that people talk about all the time. We've discussed the performances already. But is it only a case, if you put Maggie Chung and Tony Leung in this movie, Adam, mm. as those two, not main characters, but the ones we meet, um, the hitman and the scout, is this major Wong Kar Wai? I think it might be. I think for me, this was instructive to not overly credit directors where maybe the recurring acting collaborators they work with deserve as much of the praise for whatever it is they all create together. Because you said it, the visuals are here. The music is here. I want to talk about how I think they're distinct as well, but generally it's all here. What is missing? 
what is missing? Not just mm. Leong and Chung, but some of the other collaborators that he worked with, performers over the years, multiple times. And I think it's just more a credit to what they have done and will do in films we're going to get to than it is a knock on this movie. I, I just think, you know, Leon Lay is, is he's kind of boyish as the hitman, mm. never really registered for me in the way that almost every other character has so far in a Wong movie. Um, Michelle Reese is a little, I don't know if distant is the right right word but at first i thought is it cuz she's she's constantly hidden behind those bangs but no because other wong characters have been hidden in wigs and sunglasses and they've registered as much they've they found ways those performers to register as much so i do think that is what is holding this film back a little bit are some of the performances now now you do have someone like takeshi kenashiro as this unstable prankster who goes out at night this is the son of the father you mentioned and he mm-hmm. takes over food shops and forces people to be his customers i do think he's very different here in this comic role and i think that he i found him compelling enough and he has kind of this impishness to him that worked but uh, he's really the only recurring that i can think of the recurring performer and so yeah that's that's just kind of like my initial response to what you were saying mm-hmm. is i really think it was instructive as to how much certain actors contribute to the wong mystique you're maybe suggesting that you could make the box set similar to a Herzog Kinski box set yeah, or yeah, Dietrich right. and von Sternberg. This a, a marathon you know, we did, right? Yeah. It really could be all about Wong Kar Wai and his collaboration with Tony Leung. And I think you are onto something. He's an actor, going back to my point about how everything just feels like it is amped up to a point where it becomes more distraction than anything. Tony Leung's one of those actors, maybe the best actor ever at slowing everything down in the best way. Mm. When he is on screen, especially when he is in close-up as shot by Wong Kar Wai and Christopher Doyle, you are, as a viewer, immediately, urgently focused only on him. <laughs> what, what he is thinking, yep. what he's feeling, what he's looking at who he's interacting with, it it becomes all about him and what he's experiencing in that moment. And that is something we lost here. And in fact, it's not that I think that Kaneshiro is necessarily a bad actor. It's also the the character yeah. that he's portraying for me. That's where, when that, when that storyline really kicked in, that was where Fallen Angels for me became lesser tier, to use your phrase, Wong Kar Wai. Even though, as I said, I was kind of fascinated by the central couple at first, and I was interested in seeing the ways that Wong Kar Wai used the camera differently. Every every film so far, there's been some new wrinkle, some new visual element, and here we get that wide-angle lens effect. Again, sometimes, sometimes very distracting, sometimes really does kind of capture this sense of alienation and, and just weirdness, the weirdness of the space that exists between these characters. But then we'll get great shots like... The one that he returns to that's outside the assassin's hideout, where sometimes the runner is cleaning or straightening up, and other times he's going after a hit, and the camera almost feels like it's attached to a lamp or something that's swaying in the wind. You know, it's kind of dangling outside the room. There's also a different kind of intimacy to the close-ups here from what we've seen in the last couple films, where the camera really does feel like a character. It's less stylized in terms of the way he's capturing faces in shots, but the camera sort of feels like it's sitting there in the room and we're, we're in the room then vicariously through the camera that 
again, felt very different to me, including the colors too. Another different emphasis here on a green, a more neon green that feels kind of spooky, especially at nighttime. But then there's also these flashes of gold that are kind of lovely and make for this really interesting effect when they're juxtaposed, as they often are in some of these nighttime scenes, against that really kind of eerie green. So there's still a lot to take in and consider with this film, including the way it connects back to Chungking Express. There are all of those little cues or echoes back to that film here. Yeah, I thought the intimacy, the camera work push the intimacy away for me, even though in a sense it is closer on their faces. Mm -hmm. It's more in a way that distorts them. These intense camera angles pushes in on them that distorts them rather than made me at least feel close to them or intimate to them. You, you talked about all the embraces, I think with chunking express and how the camera is capturing those and, and people together, at least close together in the frame. And here it's often pushed on a character's face to the point that they seem distorted. I think, you know, I found this, as you said, heightened in terms of stylization, more so than what we've seen before. There are black and white sequences with little dollops of color. Mm -hmm. Even the editing. Including the opening. Yeah. Yeah. The opening is all like that. And, and even the editing rhythm, very fast. And so all of this, I'm watching this. And I think like you, it didn't sink in until the Kenishiro character, this prankster. I started to wonder, you know, was he trying to make a comedy this time around? Is this explicitly supposed to be a comedy first? Because formally, those are all comic elements, right? Exaggerated camera angles, mm -hmm. a faster editing rhythm. Anytime a movie gets antic, it doesn't mean it has to be a comedy, but most comedies are antic. <laughs> and so it seemed to me that uh, this might be intentional, especially in that storyline. There's the very funny sequence where he kidnaps this guy that he always runs into overnight when he's running these restaurants or these uh, snack stands, kidnaps him, talks him into calling his whole family to come down and get in the ice cream truck that he's he's commandeered and they're riding around he's forcing them to eat ice cream i mm -hmm. i found that funny i think it does push a little for further than it needs to that whole storyline kind of does but i did wonder if there are also broader comedic turns you know by karen mock and charlie young as two other women who encounter the main men they are very operating at a, a high comic level those characters in different ways and so I thought if maybe that was part of the intent here is trying his hand on something that is less of this picture of romantic longing mm -hmm. than, you know, Scorsese's After Hours would maybe be a comparison of late night antics. And similarly, I, you know, I, I don't Scorsese's comedies don't always resonate with me. I just don't think that's his wheelhouse. And mm -hmm. maybe that's part of the situation here. If Wong was trying to do something like that, and it's just maybe not where he naturally lives. Yeah, we definitely haven't seen much comedy through these first three films in the marathon. And I think you're right to say that some of those encounters and scenes between Kaneshiro and that man that he keeps running into are borderline or outright slapstick. Yeah whether they make you laugh or not. I was struck as well, Josh, watching this, how we've seen a lot of violence in these films. Chunking Express isn't an exception because that opening sequence includes some shootouts. We don't get away from it completely, but then takes a turn and goes far away from that. And here we get back to it, but there's at least one scene where we have a major shootout and we have 
a lot of blood. And in fact, here, I think it's probably even more graphic than some of the other films in terms of the blood even spattering on the camera at one point. Yeah, the lens, right? Yeah, on the lens. And yet, I think it's also in that same sequence, we get something I don't remember anyway in the other films, which is a moment where these are things that are always seeming to happen in public. And even though the the milieu is such that usually there's a criminal element and it's other bad guys or whatever being gunned down, here we see some innocent people. Yeah. There's actually like a mother and a child who sort of cower at the shots. There's a little bit of a sense that Wong Kar Wai at least is exploring kind of the collateral damage that comes from some of these characters. Yeah, I noticed that too. It, it, he distinctly returns to the mother and child to show us that they survive that particular shootout. But still, there are other men that we think we're just innocent bystanders who get taken down. So it's pretty it's pretty brutal in moments. Now, you mentioned the the shot that stood out to you. Can I give you one that I think is, you know, this movie for me, this movie was worth it for this shot alone. And it's a recurring okay. one. It's that tunnel, the traffic tunnel, which we return to at night. Often, I think it's the Kenoshiro character is riding his motorcycle and just the fact it, it's the it's the composition so you have the yellow lines on the road you know the traffic lines perfectly lined up because this is a tunnel with the white fluorescent lighting mm-hmm. that's running down along the length of the tunnel so those are perfectly in line and then you have the motorcycle racing down it i mean it's just a beautiful sort of uh, not an insert but just you know an establishing shot that he returns to that is gorgeous and i love how the movie ends by kind of riffing on that yeah. we get it from the other direction now we're looking back on kanashiro who at this point is um charlie young her character is on the motorcycle with him and it's on their faces it's that close camera I talked about, but there, you know, the music is is helping this. It's it's a little more, there's a little more of that intimacy comes back to me in that shot. And then the camera just kind of drifts and tilts a little bit up as they exit the tunnel and catches the sky. Mm-hmm. And I think that speaks to maybe what we were both missing a little bit. We get that. It's just this delicate gesture of romanticism. That otherwise isn't a lot in this film, which is exactly what we praised the other films for, I think, you know, having that quality. So, uh, but still just getting that shot alone, I think is worth it. And, you know, who's to begrudge a filmmaker at this stage, fourth movie, right? Or no, fifth, right? Ashes of Time, was that Mm -hmm. in between, right? So, Mm -hmm. so still like kind of experimenting and um, wanting to try something in a different direction. And maybe it doesn't quite work as much as the other stuff but you know you'd, you'd rather see that i think than this repetition so i think there's enough experimentation here to make fallen angels an interesting installment even if we might not say it's one of the most um compelling that we've seen yeah and part of that repetition but pushing it even further comes in the form of the way he explores role-playing chunking express is completely built on that right the the fei wong character who takes on this secret life, really, of kind of living out in a weird way her relationship with Tony Leung's character, even though they're never almost ever together, at least not in the same space in his apartment. And yet she she is getting some kind of fulfillment out of out of playing that role. And here we have the Kaneshiro character who is all about role playing, as you said, taking over these shops pretending that he has some life that he doesn't really have. And it also comes into play. I thought the scene was fascinating with the hitman when he's on the bus 
and someone recognizes him, someone from his past, and he starts talking about his life and inviting him to the wedding he's going to have this weekend. And he is asking him questions about his life and is he married? And he doesn't make up a lie or tell him the truth. He's got a fully concocted deception for moments just like this, where he can pull out the picture of his wife and child right. that he that he once had someone actually pose for, paid someone to pretend to be his wife and kids so he could get out of, if you will, situations just like that one. So he's he's taking that idea and I think kind of pushing it and pushing it in ways that are comedic, to go back to your earlier point, in a way that something like Chunking Express isn't at all. I also was going to bring up something here that I've thought about bringing up in other discussions, but feels more relevant now. And that is how, and this is why I also can't wait to see In the Mood for Love again, because it's been so long and I don't feel like I really remember it. But for a filmmaker who makes movies that are fundamentally about these powerful feelings of love, these just emotionally charged characters and relationships. Again, our most common words throughout this marathon have been longing, have been yearning. And yet, there's never, or there really hasn't been until this movie, Josh, any explicit eroticism. I don't want to suggest that there aren't charged scenes between characters. There are in these previous films. Previously, he's cut away. But he always does cut away really before anything actually happens. And I don't know if we should call it outright ironic that we finally here in a Wong Kar Wai film get a really erotically charged sequence and she's all alone. (laughs) No, I was going to bring this up as well. This is the first time we've seen consummation essentially. And is that maybe why this movie hits a little less? Maybe because of the magic of his are, are that we don't get to that point. The magic of his movies, something else I've been thinking about as we've been watching these films and it's not, it's not an observation I can, you know, back up with any authority. Actually, there's probably listeners who can write in and we can be a little educated on this, but I've had John Woo in the back of my mind, a similar filmmaker working in the sim, you know, genre films to a degree, yes. very different in terms of aesthetics, but a similar time frame as well. And it especially came to mind here because the assassin, the Leon Lai character, he uses two guns, right? He's the double fisted guns, mm-hmm. which we know from Chow Yun-Fat in thing in movies like 1989's The Killer. And so I've just been thinking about, even when we watched, you know, the very first film for our marathon, is who was, who was influencing who here? Like, who had seen whose films? Because Wu also uses that kind of staccato slow motion technique during the action scenes. It's not entirely distinct to Wong Kar Wai. So that's just something I've been curious about. You know, at the time of this film, Wu was already in Hollywood by 1995. Back in 93, he made the Jean-Claude Van Damme film, Hard Target, and then the John Travolta film, Broken Arrow. That came out in 1996. So it's something I've just been wondering about. And again, a listener who's way more educated on on the Hong Kong cinema might be able to, to fill us in on if one of them was more influenced by the other or if this was really just kind of parallel filmmakers mm. in the same, same genre, same time frame. And if we don't hear from him, I know who we could seek out on that question, Josh. That would be Sean Gilman, who certainly is an expert on these matters. My other Wong Kar Wai-ism that I've come to love through these films so far is how bizarrely specific he is with any time reference. And his films are very much about 
time. Right, absolutely. A lot of lot of clock imagery consistently. But it's always when people say anything, it's always like 155 weeks <laughs> or 23 days. You know, it's never, yeah, six months ago or a few months back. It's always bizarrely specific. Well, that that's because for most of these characters, a minute feels like a lifetime. Right. Yeah. And and wow. so well said. to emphasize that, that that's one way of doing it. Fallen Angels is currently available in its new restoration on the Criterion channel, as are all the titles in the world of Wong Kar Wai Marathon. Next up, 1997's Happy Together. Josh, do you think they'll end up happy together? Um, I'm going to say no, yet mm. I'm still incredibly excited because, yeah, this is a blind spot for me, so I yep. can't wait to get to it. More about this marathon and all of our past marathons. We've done something like 40 of these. It's available at filmspotting.net slash marathons. That's our show, Josh. All right. If you want to connect with us on Facebook and Twitter, Adam is at FilmSpotting. I'm at Larson on Film. In the show archives at FilmSpotting.net, you can find those marathons as well as reviews, interviews, and top fives going back to 2005. That's also where you can vote in the Film Spotting poll. We're asking, what's your favorite Adam Driver performance? To order show t-shirts or other merch, visit FilmSpotting.net slash shop. And you can subscribe to our weekly newsletter at FilmSpotting.net slash newsletter. Out on digital this weekend, Val. This is the Val Kilmer doc on Amazon Prime. Josh, unlike you, I don't care about redemption for Iceman. I do care about redemption for Val Kilmer, though. <laughs> A fascinating I mean, actor. Adam, they're kind of the same thing. Come on. We also have Vivo, which is a new animated musical with songs by Lin-Manuel Miranda. That is on Netflix. Or you could see the Josh Larson slightly recommended The Suicide Squad in theaters or watch it like I probably will on HBO Max. In limited release, you can see Annette. I think it's going to come to Amazon, Josh, August 20th. That's right. In between, here on our next show, we will talk about Annette along with Wong Kar Wai's Happy Together. Film Spotting is produced by Golden Joe Dassault and Sam Van Hogren. Without Sam and Golden Joe, this show wouldn't go. Our production assistant is Kat Sullivan. Thanks also to Candace Griffiths and the listeners of the Film Spotting Advisory Board. And special thanks to everyone at WBEZ Chicago. More information is available at WBEZ.org. For Film Spotting, I'm Josh Larson. And I'm Adam Kempinar. Thanks for listening. This conversation can serve no purpose anymore. Goodbye. Film Spotting is listener supported. Join the Film Spotting family at filmspottingfamily.com and get access to ad free episodes, monthly bonus shows, our weekly newsletter, and for the first time, all in one place, the entire Film Spotting archive going back to 2005. That's at filmspottingfamily.com.